you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in verse 53. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. Uh, what we've been doing for those of you visiting today, we have been going through the gospel of Mark, and we're now in the final stages of this gospel where Mark has slowed down. It was a very fast-paced um, gospel account that has now slowed down with specific detail along the way, leading to the betrayal of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about this rejection of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, which is the high Jewish court, um, as Jesus was tried illegally and uh, against their own law, we still see that they were determined to put him to death. And, and I want to talk a little bit about rejection. One thing I said as we've been going through these chapters in Mark is more importantly than identifying and pointing out and helping you see your own fallenness, which is important. We say that we exist to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying. And so we don't want you to follow after these disciples who failed because we all have tendency and capacity to fail and to sin. Rather, we want to teach you what it looks like to follow after Jesus and to watch Jesus in all these different scenarios that we can relate to and see his way for us moving forward in a way that honors God. I don't care who you are or what you have or don't have. All of us at some point in our life have experienced rejection. We've experienced betrayal. Those of you uh, like me in junior high who uh, thought I was better looking than I actually was, funnier than I actually was, um, had our own dose of rejection. Um, anybody get dumped because of the clothes that they wore? Because they look like a dork. Anyone? I did. Sixth grade. Don't feel bad for me. Jesus loves me. My wife's good looking. Amen. So... Sixth grade was rough, though. Sixth grade was rough. And rejection, I, I made it to the runoff in sixth grade for student council runoff, and I lost to a girl uh, that was super popular, and I was kind of a new kid because the elementary school I went to um, didn't populate the school as much, and so I lost. It was rejection. Uh, eighth grade, I got dumped. Ninth grade, I got dumped several times. Tenth grade, I did some dumping. Then I got into church planting as an adult, and in church planting, you get dumped all the time. It's not you, it's me, or it's you, right? I've walked with people through experiences of betrayal and rejection from the deepest, most horrible wounds of infidelity in marriage or betrayal in business or people uh, lying or parents coming to realiz the realization that their children have not been living the life they thought they were living. I I've, I've seen not only my own ability to not only be rejected but give rejection but have walked with many of you through the valleys of rejection and the reality is as humanity as followers of Jesus we will experience betrayal we will experience rejection we will at times betray and reject as well and so rather than looking at ourselves and putting up a huge mirror to emphasize our failure, I believe it's important as we open the word of God to elevate Christ, to give you Jesus, to analyze and see Jesus as he faces these things out of obedience to the Father so that we can see that we have a Savior who doesn't call us to a standard that is impossible for us to meet, but who is the standard who met his own standard for his glory and for our good. So uh, two weeks ago, Brent Stanfield um, taught about the most likely John Mark running away in his shame as Jesus was betrayed and as he was arrested. But I want you to think about when you've experienced rejection and you've experienced betrayal. 
How have you responded? How are you tempted to respond as you go through these scenarios in your mind? Do you ask God to forgive them for they know not what they do? Or do you yell crucify them? As you felt rejection and and experienced rejection, do you go before a holy God and ask him to analyze yourself and your mind and your soul? Or do you point the finger and point blame? What I want us to see this morning through this passage is that Jesus endures the pain of rejection without Uh, rejection out of faithful obedience to the Father. His endurance isn't even based upon his own ability. His endurance is based upon the one in whom he is hoping in. His source of healing, his source of hope, his source of power, that is the one that anchors and supports and empowers that place of life. Jesus endures the pain of rejection out of faithful obedience to the Father. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. And so after he was arrested, after Peter had chopped off Malchus's ear, we learned of Malchus's name in John, and then put it back and restored it. After he was violently taken and beaten, he was brought into an illegal court at night, which according to Jewish law, court was not to be held at night nor during the festivals or the Sabbath. Yet they were so bent on wanting to condemn him that they did it anyways. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And so we're going to follow Peter through this. Next week will culminate to where Peter has a great moment of failure. But notice, Peter is still following along at this point. He wasn't able to stop the arrest of Jesus, but he's still following along. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. I mean, this is pandemonium. It's, it's done in secret. It's done in a hidden manner, trying to finally put an end to the message of Jesus, trying to put an end to the, the way of his kingdom. There was a deep, deep desire in these people to maintain their power to the extent of illegally trying and diffusing the work of Jesus. I mean, we see here, they, they can't even get their testimony straight. Yet by this point, it's so bent towards condemnation that it doesn't really matter what they're saying or not saying. It doesn't really matter what their testimony is or is not. The injustice of humanity is displayed in this trial. As perfect as one might appear, none of us are as perfect as God. Therefore, our preferences are always on the table. In this group of people, I don't know about you, I like pushing through the Passion Week and not really paying attention to the details because not only is it convicting for myself, but then Jesus sets a standard that I have no idea how I would actually live up to it. And if I have a hard time knowing how to live up to it, how can I with authority get before you and say, this is the way of Jesus? Well, the way I do that is by saying, this is the way of Jesus. 
As your pastor, I'm not Jesus or your Messiah. I am not your Savior, nor can I save you. I'm more like a tour guide or a midwife coming along, called by God, anointed by God, to help carry you and point you to the one who can. You might hear it say that Christians are hypocrites. Know what I say to that? Yes. Yes. If we actually lived into that which we say we believe, our area... Our state, our nation, our world would be different. And if it were up to us to live to that standard of perfection and to make it to that goal, all of us would fail, even the best one of you. But as we compare ourselves to the work and person of Jesus and his faithful obedience, even in the midst of betrayal and rejection, we're able then to see a way of seeing why he's not only God, but he's able to forgive us, he's able to sustain us, and he's able to empower us to live more faithfully. So the first thing we see is that Jesus was falsely accused and illegally tried. The points this morning are going to be very simple as benchmarks in our journey of walking with Jesus. Jesus was falsely accused and illegally tried. If you actually understand the gospel narratives that you read, there should be this big and well, this in, in welling, uh, welling up in you of, that's not fair. That was my first encounter when I was 17 years old after my car crash where I knew I was guilty, not only of that crash, but of a a lifetime of sin. As I read about Jesus, objectively, I I didn't really bring an agenda other than I didn't really, the Jesus I had seen in other people, I didn't want to be true. That's all I knew. And I quite honestly wanted a Jesus that gave me permission for what I felt was true and right, which I found out that's not the Jesus of the Bible, but that's where I started. And as I studied the scriptures and as I studied and hung out with Jesus, I began to realize in an increasing measure that what he was going through is just deeply unfair. Deeply unfair. He was healing the sick. He was raising the dead. He was feeding the hungry. He was liberating those condemned by demons. He was standing up to the religious people who were snuffing out the joy of faith for anybody else. Yet he was falsely accused and illegally tried. They were trying to do whatever it took to silence him. And this isn't new, right? We see that with the prophets of the Old Testament. They were killed by their own people. They couldn't tolerate what they were saying, and so they murdered them. We see that uh, in people of our age. Abraham Lincoln, silenced. Martin Luther King Jr., silenced. We can think of many, many examples of people where people do not like what is being told or taught that are put to death. Because they believe that is what will stop the message. What we see, though, however, if the message is true, if the message is right, that message cannot be stopped. I don't know about you, but even when I am wrong and I do deserve some sort of justice, even if it's in marriage, my first inclination in my flesh is to hide and blame. Even... I wish I could say to you all that, hey, when we have a conflict, I'm, I'm fighting for truth. I would love to say that, and I hope to do that sometimes. But I'm fighting to be right. I'm not fighting for what's true. I'm fighting to be right or to be released or to be off the hook or to diminish the consequence. Jesus, though, however, as he's being falsely accused, I mean, this is insanity, 
He's sitting there, powerless, overtaken by their authority, understanding that while he is sitting there being judged by the world, he is the judge of the world. Let me unpack that for you. I mean, at this point, they wanted to believe that Jesus was a false prophet leading Israel astray because the call of his kingdom would greatly disorient what most of them came to believe that were in power, and it would dethrone them from their power. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Um, One of the areas I'm trying to work on in my own life is becoming a better active listener. Part of the way my arrogance plays out is I finish people's thoughts for them. And if you have any working relationship with me, you know that I have a tendency to do that, and I'm sorry. But when I seek injustice, the first thing I want to do is defend myself. And so as we look at the silence of Jesus in this scenario, that's deeply profound. Because his silence isn't just him being passive-aggressive or being a brat. His silence is a testimony to his belief in God's promises, in God's character, and his desire to obey even to the point of death. Jesus doesn't need a defense because he is who he says he is. And those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a while, we go through this phase, this self-proclaimed prophet phase, where we start declaring the need to have to speak what's right all the time. And, And I am for speaking truth. I am for speaking up at the right time. But when our insecurities start compelling us to be brash and outspoken in a self-proclaimed prophet, then we've got to be careful that we're not touting the way of our kingdom. There's times to speak and there's times to remain silent. I think Ecclesiastes 3 would be a good reminder for you and your family to go through after a school shooting. Or anything else that's controversial. There's a time and a season. The appropriate response is mourning and prayer. So this high priest goes to Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer, so he's still quiet. Now, they're saying that he said he will literally tear down the temple and then rebuild it himself. He never said he will literally tear it down. Like, he's not advocating he's going to go against Israel and tear it down. That's never been said. They're twisting his words, and that's what it's saying, that the testimony could not be tied together. It was inconsistent. They weren't even accurately saying. They're taking bits and pieces of what Jesus said, putting it together to try to bring charges to accuse him of blasphemy, wrongly declaring that he is deity, even though he is. And so the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Finally, Jesus answered and said, I am. Ego I me. The Greek is the same thing that the God said to Moses, I am. I am the Christ of the blessed. I'm the Messiah. I'm the sent one. I am the judge. I am the justice. 
But Jesus didn't leave it there for interpretation at this point. It was no longer a messianic mystery. It was very much a declaration. Look what he says next. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he's declaring the prophecy of Daniel and and the declaration in Psalms 110 that, no, indeed, I am Messiah. I am the literal Messiah. I will come and be at the authority place of God. I will come bring justice and judgment. I will reign over all of you. You you sit in a place of supposed power. That power is only given to the extent by which God permits. You do not have the power you claim to be. I am Messiah. Oddly enough, the high priest wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm so wrong here. At this point, he had bought into this so much that It goes from being a bad trial to a riot. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, the the Jewish legal entity had no authority to put to death without the Roman approval. And so although they formerly had the right to put people, to stone them to death or put them to death to kill them, they were not permitted to under the Roman Empire. Their sovereignty was limited by the government above them. And that's why he ultimately was handed over to the Roman Empire. But at this point, I mean, he's tearing his garments. He is so angry and distraught. It's not metaphorical. This guy is literally tearing his robe in fury because of what Jesus just said. He says, I am the promised Messiah. I am literally the divine Savior. I am the judge of you. You are not the judge of me. And in that fury, they were so bent on their unbelief that it just boiled over. Jesus could have downplayed it. He could have soft-trotted. He could have lived to fight another day, but no, he declared boldly. You have to understand that the truth of the gospel brings liberation or condemnation. When we declare the gospel evangelistically, when you're sitting here today and you're not yet convinced of Jesus as a Messiah and you leave this place rejecting Jesus as a Messiah, you are either sitting here hearing a message of hope and liberation and forgiveness and love or rejecting it and heaping upon yourself condemnation that is just and right from a holy God. Whether you believe it or not, the justice of God is not contingent on your faith or lack thereof. Hell is real whether you believe it or not. Justice is God's alone, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And as Jesus is sitting there, deeply saying things that produce a riot, they are condemning him to death. And it says unanimously, they all condemned him as deserving death, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. They began beating him because of what he declared. Are there any topics today that are biblical, but if we say them publicly would cause a fury? I mean, I can think of a few that would cause a riot. Now, maybe not here in Magnolia, but I think even so here. If you talk about abortion being the killing of an unborn baby, 
that brings a riot and condemnation. If you talk about the Bible teaching that marriage is between a man and a woman, that brings riot and you're called a hate person, you're, you're hate speech. If you say that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, that elicits hateful responses. One-star reviews on, on Christ Community Church's page. If you say that looking at pornography is equivalent to adultery because you're lusting with your eyes, that brings outrage from Christian people. When you tell people that living together outside of the covenant of marriage and being sexually active is sin against God, they call you a hater and judgmental. Standing up in obedience to what God's word teaches will bring about visceral reactions. Jesus tells his disciples, you will be hated on my account. You will be persecuted on my account. And I've got to confess to you, there are times where I'm tempted towards comfort. But there are also times where I'm more bent on being right than I am being thoughtful and helpful. And that's a tension I think we all have to rest in when talking about very difficult issues that the Bible speaks clearly about. These people who are outraged at Jesus aren't religiously ignorant people. These high priests have been trained in memorizing Scripture from very, very little. They'd gone through vast amounts of rabbinical training. They have gone through a lot of different seasons and, and, and rituals and moments of purification. Yet when God himself is in their midst, they riot. It's tempting to point our finger at the legalist or the religious person. But I think that capacity is in us all. We all have the tendency to create a God in our own image, a white Republican, NRA member, or not white, Democrat, social activist. And my call for us here at C3 is, I don't want to be right. I want to be faithful to the one who is right. It's Jesus. We're here to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying. Not followers of Casey Cease, not followers of the right, left, middle, libertarian wings. Jesus. In our King Jesus, before people who should have known him, but were prophesied to forsake him and hardened to carry it out, rejected him. We see that Jesus proclaimed his true identity as the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. That's what he did. I am the Messiah. I am God. I am your judge. You are not mine. You might be able to judge me now. You might even be able to have the power to put me to death, but that power is not yours unless God himself gives it to you. He says the same thing to Pontius Pilate. No authority that you have is, not, is, is yours without God giving it to you. None of it. And see, I think we are all trying to, I mean, there's even something called like PR for Jesus or something like that, public relations for Jesus, because people are trying to soften his claims. 
We're either following Jesus or we're not. And I'm not claiming I have the corner of the market on how best to do that. All I'm saying is God's given us his word. He's given us revelation. He's given us testimonies of the saints. He's given us church history. And he's given us theological ways to begin thinking and frameworks, to begin realigning our brains, to actually come back to a place with God's help by the power of his spirit to begin believing that God's way is actually better. The last thing we see is Jesus was rejected. And Jesus was illegally condemned. He was rejected by those whom he came first to save. The Jewish people. Israel. He was rejected. Jesus was falsely accused and illegally tried. Jesus proclaimed his true identity as the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus was rejected and illegally condemned. That's what happened here. Yet all the while, Jesus remained faithful to the promises of his father, the teaching of his word. And he was obedient to the point, as we'll see, to death. So a couple of things for you to think about for yourself as you face rejection and betrayal. You have to remember what God says about you. That while you were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for you. If you're a follower of Christ, these are true. The Bible says in Galatians 2.20 that you have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. The life you live in the body, you live by faith in the Son of Man who loved you and gave himself for you. It's no longer about you working or trying harder to be faithful for God. It's solely contingent on God's faithfulness towards you and his son, Jesus Christ. Hoping in Christ is your only hope at all. Even in the face of condemnation, we don't need to clarify ourselves because we have been acquitted through the blood of Jesus the second thing is, is be, stay true to the gospel and God's word even when those around you are rejecting it. I think our own insecurity in, in who God is and our lack of faith leads us to be jerks for Jesus. I don't know if you've met people like that who online, everyone's so courageous online. I mean, I call it keyboard courage. Both have K's just to be a little bit snotty and demeaning. I'm bold on the keyboard. Text message? I can throw down. Sitting with a human who has a soul face to face, it's less easy to do. Don't defend your opinion. Defend and stand on the truth. I have some friends, they do a ministry. They go to abortion clinics. And they don't condemn, they pray. And they've recently, about a year ago, had a young lady who decided with their help to keep her baby. And they threw her a big shower, and several of you gave for that and were involved in that. Instead of holding a pitch, you know, a, you know, a pitchfork and a sign, instead of yelling and condemning, we come alongside. Instead of pointing out people's wrongs, we start pointing out what is true. We elevate the truth, and we elevate Christ. And as we call people to Christ, we trust in his holiness and power, his overwhelming love, his identity, to begin to liberate people from the sins that they feel no other way out of. Rather than fixing people, we point people to the faithful one. And then we provide avenues and discipline, rails, to help them learn to be faithful. 
Rather than condemnation, we bring the gospel of liberation from addiction, from infidelities, from brokenness. We come alongside and say, there is better for you in Christ. There's a better way forward. There's a way to find life, and his name is Jesus. We can't fix people. We can't change people. We can't reprogram people. People don't need to be reprogrammed. People need to be redeemed. They need a new heart. So do you. So do I. We don't need to be fixed. We need to be changed. We don't need to create the walking dead, religious lost people. We need to pray for resurrection. Where people are able to see that Christ is better than unforgiveness. And Christ is better than what we love and that we're addicted to. And Christ is better than my truth. Because he is the truth. And I want to tell you this, those of you who can't forgive or are struggling to forgive, I understand what that feels like. It's not within you to be able to forgive. And many of you are holding hostage your forgiveness because you're believing it's up to you to feel like forgiving. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a matter of obedience if you've been forgiven by God. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a matter of obedience if you've been forgiven by God. Now, forgiveness is different than trust. You can release somebody and trust God to be the ultimate judge without immediately trusting them. For several folks who have been unfaithful in their marriages, we have a church discipline process. There's apps that get put on the phone, there's GPS tracking for trust, but we rebuild trust. Jesus doesn't say, you know, hey, trust just blindly. No, that's, that's foolish. We release, because guess what? Unforgiveness is more like drinking rat poison and expecting the other person to die. I saw that from like 12 people, just so if you quote me. Unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison and expecting the other person to die. And you can like quote like Nelson Mandela and this other lady, hyphen KCCs, Wayne Gretzky. All right, so it's called an Easter egg, friends. <clears throat> Forgiveness is not found in yourself. Maybe today with your unwillingness to forgive is you're elevating your perfection and righteousness to that of God's. Be careful. But you don't understand. You don't understand what he's done. Um, I don't understand, but Jesus does. You see, Jesus was betrayed. He was murdered. He was sped upon. He was left. He was murdered and, and put in the grave, left for dead, but God had the final say. And so what you, don't, what you need is not more self-ability to forgive. You need resurrection power to release While you think you're holding the other person hostage by not forgiving, you're really holding yourself hostage. And Satan loves it. And today Jesus wants to liberate you. It's a process. It's not easy. And that's why we partner with guys like John Vanderkay, Dr. Vanderkay, who his doctorate was in reconciliation. Our hope in becoming more like Christ isn't that we become belligerent, rude, and right, that we instead become humble and helpful and experience the power of God. Because today, as we saw in the scripture, Jesus endures the pain of rejection out of faithful obedience to the Father in heaven. He is our hope. Let's pray.
Father, we come to you this morning with great gratitude. Some of us come with heavy hearts. Some of us come with just feeling like it's impossible to forgive. I know, I know what that feels like, God. And so I ask in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit would come alongside of, infiltrate, and humble my friends who are struggling in that area. There are some here that are called to carry the difficult gospel message that will increasingly experience hostility from the world unless you go before and decide to give favor in your mercy. I pray, Lord, that the hostility that we receive is not because of how we behave, but rather because the message itself, the Lord, goes before us. And that we would look to Jesus who understands that pain, that fear, that loneliness. Lord, I know you are preparing several families in here to one day go start a ministry or plant a church. And I pray today they would begin to find their identity rooted not in their capabilities, but in their Savior. That they would endure the hardship that is gospel proclamation around the world in hostile places at times by looking to Jesus as their hope, by being empowered by your spirit, by holding on to your truth. So, Father, we ask for your help. Be near to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.